0: Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I am a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you, George. Howdy, WCC. Tell you what, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6. And while we're turning there, Chris, thanks for doing Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. We had a sweet little moment a little little while ago. We sang that song at our wedding, and our wedding anniversary is coming up. (laughs) Thank you, Chris. All right, we're continuing our sermon series through the book of Hebrews. Uh, today we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 6 verses 13 to 20. So this is the end of the chapter there. And I want to give you some context about where we are in this book. So this, this, these verses 13 to 20 is really the end of a detour that the writer to the Hebrews has taken. So uh, look, look, I'll tell you what, do this. Look back at Hebrews uh, 5 verse 9. Look at Hebrews 5 verse 9. And this is where he makes the detour, okay? So in five, nine, look at five, nine through 11, he's talking about Jesus, and he says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so right here, you think he's going to talk about Jesus being from the order of Melchizedek, but he doesn't do that. He takes this detour. And he says in um, verse 11, he says, about this, we have much to say, but it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. So he's now from, from 511 all the way through the end of chapter 6, he's taking this detour to to talk to them and give them these warnings, okay? And so we're finishing up this kind of this detour about, these warnings. In fact, you can see at the at look at, ver, at Hebrews six verse twenty. You can see where he picks it up again. He talks about Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our, on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he, then, then he picks it up. So next time I preach, we'll be looking at at chapter seven where he talks about uh, about Melchizedek. Okay. So anyway, so we have right now we have this transition, and so in from verse we, last time we looked at verse twelve and when he transitions to from 12 to 13 this is a transition because he's winding down the detour where he's going to go back to talking about melchizedek but in this transition it's really an important transition because what he has been doing so far for this long passage beginning in hebrews 5:11 to 6:12 he's been talking about our responsibility as believers He's been saying how we need to do things like grow up. So one of my sermons was called Grow Up People, right? He's telling us our responsibility. We have a responsibility not to be lazy, but to grow up in spiritual maturity. We have a responsibility to listen to God and really hear his word. Uh, responsibility not to become careful, not to fall away from Christ, all right? So he's talking about all this Christ- responsibility for us as believers and he's doing that all the way through verse 12 here now here's the thing and this is the danger of and he realizes this this is I'm so impressed with the writer to the Hebrews just how wise he is this is the thing and it happens for any pastor church or anything if you keep going down that path of emphasizing a Christian's responsibility if you keep going down that path it can lead to a number of problems because what you're doing is this is law Law is telling believers, and law is good, right? But law is telling believers our responsibility. It's God commands us to do things. So, like, don't be lazy. Grow up. Don't be dull of hearing. That's law. But the danger is if you keep talking about the law over and over again, about what we're required to do, then it can do a number of things. A couple of them are this. One, it can make us proud, it can make us proud because we think, yeah, I can do this. I got this. No no problem. You know, so that's one issue. It can make us proud. The other issue, if you keep on talking about the law is it can make us insecure because we can start asking these questions. Is it all up to me? Like, Like, Am I solely responsible for my spiritual state before God? Am I solely responsible for maintaining my faith? Am am I ultimately responsible? You can go this way. Am I ultimately responsible for my salvation? So if you keep stressing man's responsibility, then you start asking, where's God? Where's God in all this, right? If it's all up to me and I can screw it up real easily and I can fall away from Christ, that's very scary. So that can cause people to feel insecure. Okay, That can cause people to be nervous about their relationship with God hey, if it's all up to me. And that can happen when you give people the law over and over again for a long period of time. So in Hebrews 6.13, the writer transitions. He still wants to, us to see that we have a responsibility. He's not going to shy away from the law. But the cool thing is now we get to the good stuff. This is the stuff that I love. This is gospel. Okay, Gospel is... Good news, that's what that word means. Gospel is good news. And what I mean by that, it's, it's things like this. It's like God's promises. It's truths about who God is. Really, there's a sense in which you can almost divide the Bible up into law and gospel. It's not not entirely, but there's almost divide the law the, the Bible into law and gospel. It can be law, God's commands, our responsibility, that's law. And then gospel is... Good news, truths about who God is, his promises, his word to us, okay? So that's, that's law and gospel. And I love the transition here in Hebrews 6.13 because he's going to start giving us more gospel. He's going to give us good news about God's promises. Now, when it comes to God's promises, we still have responsibility, right? Our responsibility is to believe. Our responsibility is to believe God's word, and he's going to talk about that. So, Our responsibility is to live by faith live by trusting in the Lord, trusting in faith in God. It's, we don't live by faith in our own work or our faith in ourselves or, or loving ourselves or anything like that. We live by faith in God and in his word. So God gives us his truth. He makes these promises. In other words, God gives us gospel, and our responsibility is to believe. All right, so the, the title of my sermon today, and I'm going to get to it in a second, is, is this. It's about God's promises, and it's this. It's Promises Demand patience and faith promises demand patience and faith so so and this has to do with our responsibility but it's also gospel all right so that's the transition period that he's talking about here and so in this passage in 6 to 13 I want to give you three sections that's all right I'm gonna wait on you I'm gonna wait on that phone you got it all right I can't compete with the phone. Uh, So Hebrews 6, verses 13 to 20, we got three sections, all right? There's three sections. The first is this, Abraham's example. Abraham's example, that's 13 to 15. The second is God's oath, and that's 16 to 18, and I'll go through these again. That's God's oath. And then the third is our firm hope, and that's 19 to 20. Okay, so that's the three parts Abraham's example, God's oath, and the third one is our firm hope. All right? So, again, we're starting to get into gospel. He's transitioning away from law, from our responsibility, and we're going toward gospel. He's going to talk about God's promises, his attributes, these types of things. All right. So, first, Abraham's example. Let's look at verses 13 to 15. He says this For when God made a promise to Abraham, Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So remember, the writer is again saying, You've been sluggish. You haven't been growing up. You haven't been growing in your faith. But he says, look, in verse 12, he says, You need to imitate those. He says, You need to imitate those who have this faith. And then he gives us the example of Abraham. Okay, so he says you need to imitate Abraham. Now, why is Abraham a good example of faith? Well, if you look at verse 14, we're going to talk about Abraham just briefly. But if you look at verse 14, this, the promise that this is referring to, when it says in verse 14, he says, surely I will bless you and multiply you. It, there's a lot more that is involved in that. But when he, what he's saying, what God promised to Abraham is many descendants. Abraham had no de- children from Sarah at this time. He said, you're going to have many descendants, and he also he's, one of the promises was that all the nations of the world will be blessed through you, Abraham. The, the, the seed, the Messiah will come from you, Abraham, and that descendant was Jesus Christ, and Jesus came from the line of Abraham. So God told Abraham all these promises. He says, you're going to have a son, you're going to have many descendants, you know how old Abraham was when God gave these promises he wasn't like a guy in his 20s he was 75 years old when God gave him these promises and he didn't have any kids at this time and then so 75 do you know how old Abraham was when Sarah gave birth to their son Isaac you know 100 years old a hundred, that's how old Abraham was when this happened. That means not only was Abraham 75 when he got the promise, he still had to wait another 25 years before the promise was fulfilled. So Abraham had to be patient in this. And you can see that, that, that uh, in verse 12, if you look back there, it says, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the, pro- the, the promises. Abraham had to be patient. That Greek word for patience up there I like, sometimes I like the Greek stuff, but it's this, it's macrothumia, and the macro, I'll focus on the macro, if you know macroeconomics, like big, long-term, big picture, the macro there means long, and this swarm of patience is long-suffering, so you're, you're patiently suffering for a long period of time, that's part of patience, this, this idea of long-suffering. So Abraham had to be patient in waiting on God. He had to be long-suffering in waiting on God to fulfill his promise. So what he's saying is Abraham is a good example for us, so we need to imitate his faith. Abraham is a model of patience, of long-suffering, and persevering in the faith because Abraham continued to believe God's promises despite the fact that they were very difficult to believe. Now, the thing is, the whole point, remember, we're talking about gospel. Now, we're talking about Abraham and him doing stuff. But the whole point of this passage is not really about Abraham. He's a good example because he believed. But the real important part is the important part about God. The important thing to remember is that God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. This is good news. This is gospel, that God always fulfills his promises. So that's why we're talking about gospel now. Now, if you look back in verse 13... It says this, it says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. All right, what does that mean? Well, actually, if you look down at verse 16, it actually explains what this is talking about. So let's transition on to the second part now. So the first part is Abraham's example, we're to follow, that's the first section. And then we'll look at verses 16 to 18, that's the second section, it's about God's oath. So, verse 16 explains this thing about God swearing by himself. All right, so let's look at 16 to 18. It says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Verse 17, So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So, so when, in verse 13, when it says, when God made a promise to Abraham, he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. 16 explains this, and it's just a general statement about oaths. It says, people swear by something greater than themselves. We see this even in court today. I see this every day when a person is taking a deposition right? They take an oath and they say, do you sw- solemnly swear that the testimony you're about to give is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God, or as God is my witness, okay? So they're, they're making this vow and they're saying, what I am promising, what I'm about to say is I'm promising that it's true. I'm, and I'm swearing by someone greater than myself. I'm swearing by God. So people swear by something greater than themselves, so the oath gives weight to the testimony. It gives weight to the statement or the, pro- or the promise. Now the problem for God is he doesn't have anybody higher than him to swear by. He can't swear by something higher because he's the highest. So that's what it's saying in verse 13 when it said, God had no one greater by whom to swear so he swore by himself. So the point is when God makes this promise to Abraham, He not only, this is beautiful, he not only makes the promise, but he confirms it with an oath. He swears by himself, he confirms it with an oath. Now, why does he do that? Why does God swear by himself? Why does he take this oath? It says it, he does that, that word convincingly. He wants to make it more convincing to us, his people, to show us in a more convincing way that what he's saying is true. God wants to convince us that he's really telling the truth. God should be able to say it one time. He should be able to say one thing one time, and we should believe it, right? That That should settle it. But God knows that we're weak, and he knows we doubt, and he's so gracious to us, he's so loving to us, that he really wants us to believe his promises. So, there are certain times when God makes these big promises and he confirms those promises with an oath. All right, let's look at verse 17. So, it says, when God desired, so when God desired to show more convincingly, there it is, to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So, that's what we've been saying. He wants to make his promises convincing to us. All right? Now look at the phrase, heirs of the promise. Heirs of the promise. He says he he desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. Who are the heirs of the promise? He's talking about Abraham. Remember, he made a promise to Abraham. Who are the heirs of the promise? The heirs of the promise are us, his people. We are the heirs of that promise. We inherit, in other words, we inherit the promises Abraham those promises to Abraham apply to us we, we get to inherit that just like you inherit property if, if a relative dies or something we inherit those promises from God they apply to us so God promised Abraham that he would have many descendants and for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus we are part of that promise like right? we're, we're part of that family we're heirs of Abraham we're descendants of Abraham by faith so if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are a spiritual descendant of Abraham. Now, most of us aren't Jewish people, right? We're, most of us are not Jewish people, so we're not having this genetic descendant from Abraham. But again, by faith, we are spiritual descendants of Abraham. So the promises of, that went to Abraham, the promises of salvation, the promise that God would give him a heavenly city, these promises to Abraham... These come down to us. They apply to us. And he is our, Abraham is our spiritual father, our spiritual grandfather. You know the song, Father Abraham had many sons, you know, and I'm one of them and so are you. So he is our spiritual father. We're all part of the same family. There's There's not an Old Testament family and a New Testament family. We're all part of the same family. We inherit these promises. All right, back in verse 17, it says, God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise, us, the unchangeable character of his purpose, so he guaranteed it with an oath. So the bottom line is this. God really wants us to believe what he says. He really does. He wants to convince us that what he says to us is true. He wants us to believe him. Now, again, God didn't even have to give us promises. He certainly didn't have to confirm any promises with an oath. But, again, he knows we're weak. He knows we're prone to doubt, right? All of us are at times. We're prone to be weak and prone to doubt, and he wants us to believe him. All right, look at verse 18. It says, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, the two unchangeable things are the promise and the oath, okay? The promise and the other. so that by two unchangeable things which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast, to hold fast to the hope set before us. The phrase, we who have fled for refuge, just real quick, that means we who have fled to God for refuge, for salvation. We've fled to Christ for refuge. He's our refuge. He, he is our salvation. We, we put our faith in him, and he is our, our shelter and our refuge. He's our salvation. All right, continuing in verse, we who have fled to Christ for refuge, it says, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The hope, hold fast to the hope. That's what we're holding fast to, the hope set before us. Talk about hope for a second. This is important. Because when we think hope, a lot of times we think hopeful feelings, right? Like like something is doubtful, we don't know really what's going to happen, but we have some hopeful feelings. We're not sure, but we kind of have maybe some hopeful feelings about this. That's not what hope means in the Scriptures. Hope means this, and, and I want you to really get this because it's super encouraging to me. You may want to write it down, but hope means this. Hope is the confident expectation that the good things God promised are coming. Okay? Hope is the confident expectation that the good things God promised are coming. So verse 18 is saying God wants us to have a strong encouragement to hold fast to this hope set before us, this to hold fast to this confident expectation that the good things God promised are really coming he wants us to hold fast to that okay and that is just huge for us as believers and it's a constant challenge for us isn't it now notice this too it says the hope set before us set before us the idea is this this hope this confident expectation it's before us in other words it's out in front of us it's out there It's not right here in my hand. The hope is set before us. It's it's out in front of us. The good things are coming. They're coming, but they're not here yet. So the ultimate hope for us, the ultimate confident expectation for us is heaven, is resurrection life to come. It's being in the unveiled presence of God, seeing the face of Jesus. That is set before us, but it's not right here right now. It's set before us, right? It's out there. But, but we don't have it now, but we have this confident expectation that we're going to receive all that. Salvation, heaven, resurrection life to come, unveiled presence of Christ, all those things. And God is going to make that happen. Now the question is, how do we hold on to this? It says we're supposed to hold fast onto this. Well, the way we hold on to it is through, remember Abraham's example, patience and faith. Long-suffering patience and faith. Just like Abraham did. That's how we hold fast to this hope. Long-suffering patience and faith. It's not here yet, but we have faith that God is going to make it happen, just like Abraham did. All right, patience and faith. Now, this is important, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to say it. But think about this. Think about a promise. Okay? Think about any promise. So my example is going to be if a mom promises her kids ice cream this afternoon. Okay? Mom promises ice cream to their kids for this afternoon. So mom says, I'm going to give you ice cream this afternoon. Now, now think about this with me. The promises, that promise that she gives, that actually places demands on those kids, right? The demands it places on the kids are patience and faith. Patience because and this is the very nature of a promise. It demands patience and faith. I really want you to think about a promise. Promise demands patience and faith. Promise demands patience. Why? Because by definition, the thing promised is not here yet. The, the, the promised ice cream, the ice cream is promised, but it's not here yet. The kid doesn't have the ice cream. Mom's promised it, but it requires patience, right? Demands patience and faith. It's not here. So we have to be patient. I can't see it. The kids can't see it. When God makes a promise, I can't see this thing that he's, it's not here yet. So it requires us to have patience. And it demands faith. Believing the promise, even though it's not here, even though I can't see it. But believing that the promise is true. So the kids, if mom is trustworthy, the kids should believe mom when she says she's going to give ice cream. So that's faith, that's believing, right? But, but especially think about the patience. Again, if mom promises ice cream to her kids, the the promise demands patience again because the ice cream is not right here, right now. It's somewhere out in the future. Again, it's the same when God makes promises to us. By definition, the things promised are not here. They're out in the future. So it requires us to have this long-suffering patience. And for some of us, when we are suffering for a long period of time, it is very difficult to continue to have faith. Right? It's very, very difficult, but God makes his promise, so we are to believe those promises. And sometimes, again, for there, it can be for a person a very long period of time. Just like Abraham, it can be a very long period of time before the promises are fulfilled. But he requires us to have this patience and this faith because we believe God is going, this hope, we believe God is going to bring these good things to us. Okay. So again, promises demand patience and faith. All right, let's look at verses 19 to 20. This is the last section. So the first section was Abraham's example. Second section was God's oath. And here's the third section, our firm hope. We've already talked about hope for a little bit, but let's look at our firm hope. Verses 19 and 20. It says, and we have this. He's talking about hope. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul the writer uses the illustration of an anchor he says we have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain I'm going to talk about that behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek and as I said he's going to talk about Jesus being a high priest according to order of Melchizedek So in verse 19, he says, we have this, he's talking about hope, we have this hope out in front of us. So again, hope is this confident expectation that the good things God promised are coming. And he says, this is the hope, and he says, this hope is a sure and steady anchor of the soul. So he's saying that the hope is like an anchor. So think of an anchor that's attached to a boat, all right? So the anchor is this big, heavy hook, right? and it drops down from the boat, it's attached to the boat, so then it has this tether or or chain or cable or whatever it is attached to the anchor. So the picture is the boat is up here on the surface of the water, and the anchor drops down, and then the anchor hooks onto something at the bottom of the lake or the ocean or whatever it is, then the anchor has this cable or chain connected to the boat which is on the surface, all right? So when the wind and waves are coming up on the surface where the boat is, the anchor is like this strong tether keeping that boat solid, stable, okay? So when the winds and the waves, no matter what it is, that anchor allows that boat to be stable. Now, the only way the anchor is going to work, though, is if the the anchor and the cable and everything's connected very strong, and if the construction of all this is good, right? It needs to be solid and steady. So what he is saying is, and, and the anchor has to be hooked onto something solid. The anchor can't just be dragging along on sand or something, right? So the writer is saying we have this hope, this confident expectation about God, fulfilling his promises. This is the anchor, and this is the anchor to our soul. So it's like the boat is like the soul, okay? So we have this anchor, this cable or chain or whatever. It's firmly attached, it's sure and steadfast attached to our soul, and it's connected, and we'll talk about where it's connected. But what that means is when the winds and waves and storms and life come against our soul, we have this hope, this expectation about who God is. We have this as a steadying force to bring stability to us. We don't have to get tossed around. It doesn't mean that going through a storm is fun, right? Going through a storm is terrible. But we still don't get blown against the rocks and get destroyed. We have this stability, okay? Then it says, so, so we're thinking about the anchor being attached to our soul. Where's the other end? Well, it says it in verse 20. It says this hope, this anchor, enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That's verse 19, actually. And then behind the curtain in verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, okay? So he wants us to see that this cable, again, attached to our soul on one end, and on the other end, this this anchor, it says, enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. If you've never, this could be totally confusing to you, but what he's talking about is the heavenly holy of holies, this is, the, the inner hope. this is a place where God truly is. The temple and the tabernacle were earthly pictures of God's presence, but the real presence is in heaven. And so he's saying that th- this anchor of hope that we have has gone behind the curtain. It's in the heavenly holy of holies. It's with God. It's in the unveiled presence of God. That's where our anchor is attached. That's where our hope is. And the beauty of this is the anchor will never let go of its grip on our soul. That's where the, And the other end is attached to in the presence of God, in the unveiled presence of God. So the picture is our soul is anchored to God in the presence of Christ, right, in the throne room of God. That anchor is out there. We can't see it, but there is a tether, a cable, grabbing onto our soul, and it's solid. And the picture is that Christ, Jesus Christ is in the throne room and there's a sense in which, and this is what I've been thinking about and pondering, there's a sense in which Jesus is slowly reeling our souls to him, right? He's slowly pulling our souls to him and one day we will be in his unveiled presence. We will be in the heavenly holy of holies. In fact, One day, the Bible talks about the entire universe essentially being the holy of holies in his glory no veil, no partition. We will be bask always in the glory of Christ. All right. So it says Jesus is our high priest. He's gone on as a forerunner on our behalf. In other words, a forerunner this idea is he's already blazed a trail. He's already blazed a trail into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And what's awesome is we're going to follow that path. We're going to take that same path. He's pulling us there. He's bringing us to him, and he's not going to let us go. He's slowly reeling us in, pulling us into his presence. Now, the text does not say, we're going to actually sing a song, I think. The text does not say in this that Jesus is the anchor. The hope is the anchor. But, and this is important, saying that Jesus is the sure and steady anchor, it's true. It's true. It's a wonderful way of thinking about this picture because our hope, our absolute confidence is based on Jesus, It's based on what he has done. So in a real sense, Jesus is the anchor of our soul because we're in Christ. We're united to him by faith, and he promises that he will never leave us, and he promises us that he will take us to be with him. He's going to pull us in, right? He's going to take us to be where we will always be tethered to Christ. eventually we're going to be with him in heaven in the resurrection life to come we're tethered to Jesus and there's no way he's going to let us go all right so that's the passage all right and here's what I want to stress the main point of this whole passage is simply this believe God's promises believe God's promises believe God's word and the primary application has to do with salvation so I'd say if you are not a believer look Put your faith in Jesus. Trust him. Give your life to him. Believe his word. Just believe his promises and he'll save you. That the primary application is about the life to come, okay? And I've tried to stress that in the book of Hebrews. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about resurrection life to come all the time. But I want us to see this as well, that truly believing God's promises also has a huge impact on our lives right now, not just in the life to come. It has, believing God's promises has a huge impact on our growth and our holiness in a huge way right now. And I'm convinced that faith, just believing God's word, I think it is the key for spiritual growth. Believing what God has said. I'm going to give you a personal example. I'm going to try to, I'm trying to get you to think about how believing God's promises affects all aspects of your life. And I'm going to try to give you a personal example from my wife and me, okay? and you're gonna, She's giving me permission on this, and you're going to see how we're different, and you're going to see how we need to grow in this, okay? Because what I want you to do, I want to see really the, the, the root of the problem for all of our sins or our weaknesses or whatever ends up being a lack of faith. It ends up being a lack of trust in the Lord. All right, so this is me. All right, I'm going to tell you sort of my personality and tendency, strengths, weakness. My tendency is to be blunt, to speak truth, and to confront. I have no problem confronting. That's my tendency, all right? So I will say, I'll pride myself on that. Hey, I speak my mind, right? This just who I am. Now, think about this. The fact that I often feel like, I often feel like I need to say something as well. I, I, if something's said, I just need to say, something. I need to speak into this, right? That, that's the way that I feel. But the fact that I often feel like that, many times that can be good. Many times it can be God-honoring. It really can because we're called to speak truth, right? So it can be a good thing. But my tendency to speak my mind, it can also be bad. If I always feel the need to say what's on my mind, it's, it's, sometimes it's bad, sometimes it could hurt relationships. And here's what it does. It reveals in this a need for me to think that I need to be in control that I need to control the situation. My natural tendency is for me to control the conversation. My natural tendency is to, to think I need to control the situation. I control conversations by talking a lot, right? If I just talk over you, then I'm, I'm controlling the conversation. If I need to control what's around me, like I, so I'll influence, I'll give my opinion, so I'm hoping I can control the situation over this, right? If I, need to, if I feel like I need to speak boldly about this or whatever it is, that's my natural tendency. And so I, so I do all this. Now think about this, and this is hard, but I want you to think about it. If I'm like this, and I can be sinful in this, and I need to feel like I need to be in control, what am I not believing about God in that moment? Think hard about that. What, what am I not believing about God? If I feel like I need to be in control, what am I not believing about God? I think it's this. I think it's deep down there's a part of me that does not believe that God's in control. If if I feel like I need to control everything, I may say, yeah, God is sovereign, but there's really a part of me that doesn't believe. That's a lack of faith. You see that, that, how that plays itself out? If I need to be in control and I can't let it go, I may say that I believe God is sovereign and he has everything under control, but deep down I don't really believe it. And, and, and I would never say this, but I, there's a part of me that says, well, I don't think God can handle it. He needs my help, right? He needs me to, to control the situation, but, but I do that because I fear being out of control, so it shows in that way. This is a faith issue. It shows I'm not trusting God is in control. This is a Hebrew 6 issue. This is faith trusting in God and his character, okay? So for me, I need to grow in this. I need to believe God's word. I need to believe that he's sovereign. He's, got, he's in control. That doesn't mean I'm passive. It doesn't mean I always keep my mouth shut. Sometimes I'll open my mouth. There's still lots of times when we need to speak truth. But, but that's my natural tendency. So for me, I need to change in this way. I need to believe God's in control. Okay, I don't, need, I don't need to be in front of the church every week. That's why sometimes I'm worshiping my family. I'm never, never up here. I don't need to lead and be in control all the time. Many times I need to keep my mouth shut and just listen. That's a challenge for me, but I need to learn to do that. And that's a faith issue. As I said, this is a Hebrews 6 issue. God wants us to be convinced that what he's saying is true, that his character is true. All right? So that's, that's me. All right. Now, my wife is the exact opposite in this. Okay? My wife is on the other end of this. She is naturally a peacemaker. She's gentle. She's very gentle. She's naturally a kind and sweet person. She's a peacemaker. And it's beautiful to watch. God has gifted her in this. All right? But there's a, there's a downside to this. And do you see it? There's a downside to peacemakers. And she recognizes this. There are times when she needs to confront. There are times when you peacemakers out there, there's a time when you need to confront. There's a time when, you, when she needs to speak truth even if it's hard. Listen, if there is a friend or family member and their lives are headed down a path of destruction because of sin and and foolishness, and you sit there and you're quiet and you say nothing, that's terrible. You see that? By saying nothing, you're actually harming that person. They may need you to speak truth to them. Now, it's easy for me to speak truth, but it's harder for her to do that. And there are times when a natural peacemaker needs to confront sin. But they don't want to do it. They don't want to offend. They don't want to cause hurt feelings. So peacemakers will often sit by and they'll say nothing while a loved one destroys their life. That's terrible. So for God, God, for you peacemakers, you need to take opportunities to take wise risks to step in and confront sin, right? For the people you love. If I'm a peacemaker and I avoid confrontation, if that's happening, we're going to ask the question again, what am I not believing about God? Or, or what lie am I believing in that? Here, here's one of them. The Bible calls it the fear of man. The fear of man. If I am concerned about speaking truth because I'm more concerned about what other people think, if I'm concerned about people not liking me or whatever, then really I'm more concerned about what people think than what God thinks. And again, this is a faith issue. This is, this is a Hebrews 6 Issue because God has put us into situations where we need to speak truth, where we need to talk to family and friends, right? To to have some guts and confront. But if I'm always more concerned about people thinking I'm a nice person or whatever, if I'm always concerned about that and fearing what other people think, if there's a title of a book, if people are big and God is small, that's a problem. Okay? So, Again, this is a faith issue. It's believing God. It's believing he puts, us into, he puts us all into situations where we can both be loving and gentle and where we can speak truth, right? Now, I could, give, I could give you millions of examples about this, but I would just ask you to think in your own life. Just ask the Lord where you need to grow in this. I want us to be people who believe God. That's the bottom line. I want us to be people who believe God what God has said and who trust in his character and trust that he wants to use us in the lives of others and I'll say this too we're all going to screw up there are times when I say things that I shouldn't there are times when I shouldn't say things that I say something there are times we all mess up but God wants us to work in this and ultimately by believing him by trusting him that he is sovereign and he wants to use us in the lives of others all right I'm almost done I skipped over something that I want to stress, and it's verse 18. If you look back in Hebrews 6, verse 18, it says this. It says, in the middle of that verse, it says, it is impossible for God to lie. And I want to end on this. It's impossible for God to lie. And it's interesting because this is saying that there are things that are impossible for God, right? There are things that are impossible for God. There are things that God cannot do, and one of them is lie. God cannot lie it's impossible for him to lie he can't do it he just can't do it and it means if he says something it's going to happen and that means we need to believe it when God says in Romans eight twenty eight that he's going to work all things out for the good of us his people when he says that when he says he's going to work everything out for our good eventually he can't lie we have to believe that When Jesus says he's going to prepare a place for us and he's going to take us to be with him, when he says that, he cannot lie. He can't lie. That means we need to believe it. When he says, when Jesus says, if you're worried or anxious, consider the lilies of the field, right? Consider the birds. God, your father takes care of them. He's going to take care of you too. When he says that, he can't lie. It's true. And we are to believe it. The Lord's gonna take care of us. Okay, so, so WCC family, let's, let's believe it. Let's encourage one another to believe God's word. Let's encourage one another to grow in our trust, in our confidence in God's promise promises, because He can't lie. So, by, again, it takes patience and faith, but let's hold fast to God's promises. And when the storms of life come, when the hurricanes of life beat against your soul, you know what? That's okay. Because we have a sure and steady anchor, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that anchor is fixed in the holy of holies. And Jesus will never let us go. He's drawing us to him. He's bringing us to himself. And one day we will be there with him in his unveiled presence. And we will behold our Lord Jesus face to face. So while we're here, let's believe him. Let's trust him because he can't lie. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Our Father, our God, we love you. We praise you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you for your word. Uh, thank you, Lord, that you can't lie. Everything you've said is true. You cannot lie. And I pray that that we would be people who just grow in our trust for you, our love for you, our, our treasuring of your word, that when we open up your word or when we hear your word read or preached, we would just naturally just believe it because it's true. And you've even given us vows and oaths to confirm, to, to convince us because you know we're weak and we have doubts. So thank you for your truth. Thank you that you care about us and you want us to believe. You're not trying to trick us. You want us to believe and you want us to flourish. And also, Lord, for I pray that each one of us would really look in areas of our lives where we realize we're honestly not trusting you in this issue. Maybe there's some area of sin. Maybe it's it's we're finding some pleasure in something that we know is not good for our souls and you've said in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore so let us draw near to you to find that let's not be deceived so help us lord to just find areas where we realize we're we're just not believing what you said and we're believing wrong things about you so help us in that i know it's hard lord but holy spirit i pray that you'd work in people's hearts Uh, we love you i thank you for these folks here i thank you for my precious church family I pray for for the folks here, for the folks who are not here. Grow us in our faith, Lord. Grow us in our holiness. Allow us to treasure you, Jesus, because you are a forerunner, and you're, you're gonna, we're going to be with you forever. So we love you and praise you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's now the time.